0: Good morning. We are very grateful for every one of you being here. I also want to say to those, uh, we get a report every Sunday of those that are watching us online, and that's uh, a good 30 to 40 people. And so we want to speak to you as well and tell you that we're grateful that you're with us. I want to say to you all, there's a different way in which you might respond to this lesson. If you are online, there are guys who are monitoring the comments that you make, And uh, any prayer requests or things that you'd like to pass along, we would appreciate that. And for you who are present with us, um, as we encourage each other in this time of worship, um, may we also be ready to encourage each other if there's a need that one has this morning. Since 2004, Kathy Cashwell has been on permanent disability because of a shoulder injury that she sustained. And she might have gotten away with it if she had not gone on The Price is Right. In 2009, she won her way onto the show, and that means that she was asked to spin the big wheel. Now, she had filed disability paperwork to the effect that she could not sit, stand, kneel, twist, grab, and stretch. But if you've ever watched anybody spin the big wheel, you know that you have to do just about every one of those things. Another little-known fact is that federal fraud investigators must sometimes watch The Price is Right because they caught her. And in catching her, they began to uh, file charges of fraud against her. And in the further litigation of that case, they found that she also went ziplining with her family on vacation in 2010. Don't you wonder what was going through her mind? How she rationalized and justified herself on that occasion. Perhaps she felt that she was justified or entitled to do so. Never mind that she lied and cheated. Apparently she thought that she just is going to get away with it. You know, I think about the context of the passage that Chuck just read to us so well. As the Apostle Paul is now writing a follow-up letter to a church that was very near and dear to him. They were a church filled with a lot of difficulties, a lot of moral and doctrinal problems, and a lot of strife and division. And that was at the heart of it. And the Apostle Paul appeals to them in the first letter to be united in the same mind and the same judgment and that there be no divisions among them. And he goes one by one through a various number of matters that concerned them and that divided them. I consider 2 Corinthians perhaps to be the most personal letter and correspondence that the Holy Spirit left for us in the New Testament. And as you walk through this letter that begins with a high note of comfort and assurance, you get down to a discussion that the Apostle Paul is giving to this church or having with this church who has mostly repented and seems to be on the right track. He talks about, as we saw in the reading this morning, the inevitable demise of the body. Try what you will, do whatever you can. You are fighting a losing battle with the physical deterioration of the body. The Apostle Paul says that's no cause for you to be alarmed or concerned or upset because we have something far greater that's awaiting us. We want to lay off this earthly tent for something better. We don't want to be absent from the Lord. We want to be present from the Lord. And we've just read that in that section of scripture in chapter four and chapter five. But in the midst of that, I want us to notice some things that the apostle Paul says. We pick up right where Chuck left off. For we make it our ambition to be well pleasing to him, whether present or absent. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things which he has done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. In this context, Paul refers to a great and sobering day that is simply referred to in Scripture as the day of judgment. And even though most people live as though they can do what they please and will never have to give an account for their lives, the Apostle Paul paints a completely different picture in our text. I just want us to look at those few verses that I just mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 through verse 11, and I'd like for us to make four brief observations about this sobering scripture concerning the judgment. In this sobering scripture about the judgment, what can I learn? The first thing that I learned is that how I live matters. The Apostle Paul leads out in that text by saying that it matters how I live. It mattered to the Apostle Paul. As he laid out this idea that he wanted to live in a way that's well-pleasing to him, it implied that he could live in a way that was not well-pleasing to God. And it would also be that if he did not live in a a way that was well-pleasing to God in this life, that it would matter at the judgment. Most people live with the philosophy that ultimately it doesn't really matter how we live. I think about the idea that was put forward by the humanist psychologist by the name of Carl Rogers. He said that man must trust in himself. Man must rely on himself to determine right or wrong. All that matters is, am I a being living in a way that truly satisfies me and that truly expresses me? Even though... Rogers was born and and he died in the 20th century. He reflects a very ancient philosophy. It's a philosophy that we're introduced to in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, the Bible, Moses is the writer, says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said unto the woman, Indeed, as God said, that you shall not eat of any of the trees of the garden. And the woman answered and said, Of the fruit of the trees that are in the garden we may eat, but of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto her, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be as God, knowing good from evil. I want to point out to you there in Genesis 3, verse 1 through 5, that a world of pain and suffering and crime and evil followed Eve following the serpent's rotten philosophy. The idea that you can live any way that you want to and not give an account for it is an ancient one. But the Apostle Paul is laying out for us the idea that it indeed matters how we live. That, it, that we are held to a standard of judgment that we're going to read about further on in verse 10 and then on down through the chapter. You know, as the Apostle Paul is speaking there, he says that we make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. I found something very interesting about that word as you begin to trace it throughout the New Testament, that this word translated pleasing, every time that it's found in the New Testament, the object of the pleasing is always God. And it is always said to be The object or the aim of the Christian's life. And it's found in some passages very familiar to us. For example, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. There's our word unto God. That our bodies, our lives must be lived in an acceptable way. That's our same word as pleasing here. Or how about in Colossians 3 and verse 20 where the Apostle Paul is giving instructions to children and he says that uh, obeying their parents is well pleasing to God. Or how about in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 16 where the Hebrews writer says that doing good and sharing is pleasing unto God. Or maybe the one that sticks out in our mind the most or that we're most familiar with is in Hebrews 11. But before we get to the one that we know better, uh, Enoch is held up as an example of the kind of faith that we need to have. This faithful man, Enoch. Hebrews 11 and verse 5 says that his faith pleased God. That was the witness that he had of God. And so the Hebrews writer says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so we have this laid out for us, what the Apostle Paul is saying, that it matters how I live. He realized that he could live in a way that was not right. He could live in a way that was right, but how he lived mattered. And without this distinction, a lot of the contrasts in the Bible make no sense. In, in, uh, For example, the passage in Genesis chapter 2, in verse uh, 17, there is good and evil. In Psalm chapter 1, there's the blessed and the wicked. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 17, there's the right and the wrong. In Romans 5 and verse 19, there's the obedient and the disobedient. These make no sense without there being a, uh, the fact that I must live in the right way. You know, in 1966, the cover of Time magazine asked the question, Is God dead? And then in 2011, they followed up with another cover in which they said, What if there is no hell? And though the majority seem to want to believe that God is dead and that there is no hell, the scripture makes it clear. And because God is alive, and because all of us will live somewhere for eternity, Paul's words resonate with us. How I live matters. I make it my aim to be well-pleasing to him. In this sobering statement, this scripture about the judgment, I observe, first of all, that how I live matters. But then, second, as I look at the sobering scripture about the judgment, I realize that I will personally be there. You know, the international uh, um, court that is given... Uh, an opportunity to try the worst criminals in the world. The International Criminal Court is supposed to be the, the most powerful tribunal that exists. And they try to bring to justice some of the world's worst people. People who are guilty of genocide and war crimes and crimes against humanity. And as we examine those individuals, desperate as they are, it's interesting to notice that the 32 who are now in the crosshairs of the International Criminal Court—they are those nine of whom are still fugitives from justice, and nine more have had the cases against them drop. I don't know if you know who Randy Quaid is. Uh, from the uh, uh, cousin Eddie, I believe, is his most uh, famous role that he has played. He and his wife got into a lot of troubles over taxes and, and other issues, and they fled to Canada. And as they were there in Canada, there was the California state court that was trying to pull them back and get them back. And nothing could be done to bring them to trial. It was only when they volunteered to come home that they faced up to the things that were held against them. It reminds us that there is no court. There is no particular justice system that is so powerful that we must obey its orders and its mandates. But there is a heavenly courtroom In which we must all appear. The Bible makes it clear that there is an accounting that all of us will accord ourselves to. The Apostle Paul says this very clearly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. When he says, To you who are weary, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his uh, mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who shall be destroyed with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And so as I read this, there are some deductions that I draw. Nobody is so important that they will not be made to appear there. Nobody is so unimportant that they will be overlooked and thus not made to appear at the judgment. Hollywood and music stars and pro-athletes and CEOs and uh, geniuses and presidents and dictators, they will be there. And subsistence farmers and peasants and orphans and widows and every indigent person that has ever lived will be there. And as I understand that fact, as I look at passages like John chapter 5 and verse 28, Jesus is teaching during his ministry and he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Or Jesus says in the parable of preparation in Matthew 25 and verse 21, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all of His holy angels with Him, then will He sit upon His glorious throne, and before Him shall be gathered the nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd divides the sheep from the goats, and the sheep will be on His right hand and the goats on His left. As I read that, it causes me to stop and say, I am going to be there. I will personally appear At the judgment. And as I think about that fact, I realize that I'll be numbered among that group that stands before Almighty God. I will personally appear at the judgment. And the substance or the basis of the judgment will be the record of the evidence of my life. As I stand before him, I'm going to give an account. And here's the thing that really resonates with me as I see that each one of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to stand before Christ. And I am not going to give an account for how Kathy or Gary or Dale or Carl have responded to the will of God. And they will not give an account for how I did. I am not going to stand on the basis of how Gary and Brenda Pollard lived their lives. And they're not going to stand and give an account for how my siblings and I responded to the message of Christ. I am not going to give an account for how Bobby and Kevin and John and Russell did their work in the Lehman Avenue Church of Christ. And they're not going to stand and give an account for how I've done mine. I'm not going to stand and give an account for how the Lehman Avenue Church of Christ behaved or how America was or how the world acted. And they will not for me. But as sure as I am standing before you this morning, I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I will stand and give an account for what I have done with that great plan of salvation. The the grace of our Lord and the love that was shown at Calvary... I will stand and give an account for whether or not I responded to the conditions of that grace. I will stand and give an account for how I live the Christian life. As I am standing before you today, I will appear at the judgment and so will you. Hebrews 9.27 makes it very clear. As it is appointed unto men once to die, after this the judgment. In this sobering scripture about the judgment, I also learned... That I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now this is another important and interesting aspect to what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. But I want to ask you this morning, in standing before Christ, before whom will I be standing? The Apostle Paul makes it clear in writing to Timothy that that he is going to judge the living and the dead at his coming and at his appearing. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 1, but before whom will I be standing? I will be standing before the one who fashioned me, who created me. Colossians 1 and verse 16. I will be standing before the one who came down to this earth, who loved me so much that he died for me. Second or 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. I will be standing before the one who suffered and bled and died for me. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14. I will be standing before the one who destroyed Satan's power over me through his sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. I will be standing before the one who left his will for me to be written down by men for me to follow. Mark 16 and verse 16. I will be standing before the one who in that word wrote me to warn me of the reality of hell. Matthew 25, 46. I will be standing before the one who wrote to assure me of the promise of eternal life and that new heavens and new earth and in John 14, verse 1 through 3, I will be standing before the one who one last time wrote to me and not only says, Come to me, but said, Behold, I come quickly. Revelation chapter 22. The silence of the order of the universe is going to be disrupted in a moment. And that order is going to be replaced with calamity. And I need to understand that for the majority of people, this is not going to be a welcome sight. For those who have not obeyed the gospel and for those who are not walking in the light as children of God, this is going to be a disturbing moment. It'll be a moment that catches the overwhelming majority off guard. They're not going to be ready for that. They're going to see the power and the authority of Jesus, but it'll be too late for them. They'll bow every knee and every, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but it will be too late. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 11 For those who have responded to His grace, it's going to be the most wonderful day, the glorious moment, the moment we've been waiting for. I love how it's put in Matthew 25 and verse 34. Then shall the King say unto those who are on His right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom, listen to this, which was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Do you see that before God ever created humanity? Out in the eternity before time, He had a place prepared for His children. It was a place prepared with Him. A place prepared that's so wonderful by any comparison that we make. And for those who are on His right hand, this is going to be a wonderful moment, a blessed moment, because even though we may have been troubled in this life, it's going to be a time of unimaginable joy and eternal comfort. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 7. And standing before Jesus will be standing before our dearest and closest friend. But if we have not responded to the benefits of His grace, and we've not been obedient, it will be worse than our greatest fears realized. Listen to the contrast in Matthew 25 and verse 41. Then shall the king say unto those that are on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. Listen to this. Prepared for the devil and his angels, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment. You see, when that fire was created... It wasn't created for us. He doesn't want any of us to perish. But for those who fail to be obedient to his word, it will be the place where they'll go where there's no comfort forevermore. And I realize that I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's not going to be a place that is for those who are not quite good enough for heaven or those not quite bad enough for hell. I could not stand before a more fair, a more patient, and a more loving judge than Jesus Christ. But his decision will be right. It will be irreversible. And I understand that I will stand before the judge, Christ, on that day. In the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. But in this sobering scripture about the judgment, I want to notice one more thing that I will be rewarded according to the deeds which I have done. There will be no mistrials, there will be no mistakes at the judgment. Our Lord is going to have privy to the perfect record of every individual's life. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11... John said, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it before whose face the earth and the heaven fled away for there was found no place for them and I saw the dead the small and great stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books according to their works and the sea gave up the dead that was in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and they were judged every man according to their works and death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire this is the second death and whoever was not found in the Lamb's book of life was cast in the lake of fire as i read that passage i realize that the evidence will not be tampered or meshed with in order to frame me or get me off the hook my life and how i lived in response to his grace whether or not the blood of his son is covering my sins will be the basis of the judgment as i stand before him As I stand before him, I'm going to give an account for the things that I have done in my body. As I think about that, I realize I have but one life to prepare for that, and that's this life. And more than that, I have but one moment, and that's this moment. But I do understand that I will go to the place that I prepared to go to. What I find interesting is that there's one other verse here. In our discussion, in our examination, we've looked at verse 9 and verse 10. But I look at verse 11 and the Apostle Paul says, Knowing therefore the the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What do we persuade men? We persuade men of the reality of the very things that we've been talking about this moment. And Paul says, we persuade you, we beg you, we urge you. Don't put it off. The Apostle Paul says, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we, we plead with you in Christ's stead. Be reconciled to God. For God made him who knew no sin. He became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And then he comes along right behind that and he says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. You know, as I read and examine this, I realize God pleads with us through his word to make sure that all of us unitedly live in such a way that we can stand on the Lord's right hand at the judgment. Suppose that we were able to interview the rich man. You know, our Lord tells us this parable in Luke sixteen nineteen through 31 to give us a glimpse into the eternity, both sides of eternity those who are at eternal rest and those who are in eternal torment, if God allowed the rich man to be freed from that place of torment to come and speak to us today, what would he say? He would say, verse 24, I am in torment. He would say, verse 28, do not come to this place of agony. You know, as we think about what the Apostle Paul is saying here, as we see passages like Matthew 25, we read about separation. Separation. About 30 students in the Modesto area of California went to a general assembly with all seniors in that class. And they were told in this assembly of all the graduating seniors that they were to stand up, turn and face their classmates and say goodbye. Two truancy officers had kept up with their attendance, and it was such that they had missed too many days to graduate. And so they told these seniors to turn around and face their graduating classmates and to say goodbye. Surely they did not think that their behavior was going to result in this, but they were forever separated with that class of graduates. On April 14th, 1912, well over 2,000 passengers boarded the Titanic in Great Britain to make their way across in the maiden voyage of this gigantic ship. And there are so many tales of both heroism and cowardice and certainly tragedy on that night. Joseph LaRoche was the only black passenger on the Titanic. His pregnant wife and two daughters were on the ship making their way from France to ultimately Haiti. And as they were there that evening, he was the first one to recognize that something wasn't right, and so he alerted his wife and his daughters and helped them to get to what turned out to be presumably lifeboat eight. And his wife and two daughters were among the just over 700 who survived. And Joseph was among the over 1,500 who perished. As he laid them in the lifeboat, the last known words that Joseph said to his wife was, we'll see each other again soon. We don't know how much time that Joseph had to watch his wife, his daughters, and the rest in that boat as they paddled in that icy water as he stood on that sinking ship. But his act of heroism was such that he is remembered. This calm, this heroic man watched as his family left. He joined so many others that night who were separated from their family. He said, we'll see each other again soon. He died April fifteenth, 1912. His wife died 62 years later. How many were separated on that tragic evening? When I think about the Judgment Day, and I realize the individual nature of it, I do realize that there are going to be loved ones who are separated. Spouses are going to be separated eternally. Children are going to be separated from their parents, parents from their children. Brethren and friends will be separated forever. How tragic that is going to be for those who are lost forever. But friends, it doesn't have to be that way. God gives each and every one of us the opportunity to respond to His grace. The very fact that we're all here today, and considering this subject that the Apostle Paul addresses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is a testimony to the fact that all of us here, have at least this opportunity to reflect on our circumstances where we are. My prayer is that each and every one of us is ready for that moment that may come at any moment, but that there's someone who has not yet responded to His grace by being baptized for the forgiveness of sins based on our faith that Jesus is God's Son, willing to change our minds in repentance and make Jesus our Lord. Phil's going to lead us in a song of encouragement, of invitation. And it may be that you're ready in this moment and you're not, uh, it doesn't concern you to do it publicly. Maybe you want to respond during this invitation song to put your Lord on in baptism. We're happy to help you do that. Maybe you want to wait a few moments as people disperse to their Bible classes and do it then. There's nothing going on that's more important than us helping you to make that decision. We promise you that. If you're a child of God who has left the light for the darkness, and are not putting Christ in the place that He needs to be, and because of the sin in your life, you find yourself separated from Him. Let us never forget the picture of the prodigal son. You never go too far. You never sink too low that you can't come back, and the Father will make you a child once more. I don't know if that describes where you are. Perhaps you're overwrought by the struggles of this life. You feel like you're at the end of your rope of faith, and you want us to pray with you. I don't know if you have a need, but if you do, And you'd like to make that known publicly. We're going to stand right now. We're going to sing this song. And we encourage you to come forward right now as we sing this song.